Luke 15, 20 through 24. Luke 15, 20. So he got up and went to his father, probably rehearsing the speech he was going to give the whole way. I've sinned, sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just, just make me one of your hired servants. That's all I ask. Rehearsing how he was going to say it, every word. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him, which meant he was looking for him. He was already looking, probably had been his practice for however long the son was gone to go out one, two, three, four times a day. Is he there? Could it be? Is it it possible that over the horizon I could see him coming? While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled, not with indignation, not with wrath, not with hostility, not with judgment, was filled with compassion. He ran, something that no one in his position and prominence would have done. It was just entirely improper. He'd have to grab his robes up around him, bare his shins, become undignified. But that's what he did. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. A display of grace and kindness, mercy and love, not of what the son in this story no doubt would have been expecting, not what everybody around would have been expecting, entirely the the opposite of what anybody would expect considering what the son had done, but that's what he did. And it makes me think when I read this part of the story that Jesus was telling, it makes me think of what David expressed in Psalm 103. Psalm 103, 10 through 14 says this about God, about the perfect Father. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, and you don't get any farther, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Isn't that great news? Aren't you you so thankful that's true? That he doesn't pay us back? That he doesn't get even? 
even though he could and by all rights should, that he doesn't repay us according to our iniquity, he doesn't respond to us or treat us according to what our sins deserve, that he knows our frame and remembers that we are frail and weak and dust, we are faithless, yet he remains faithful. That's ultimately what this story shows us. That's what this story really is, is all about. Even though it is uh, at this part of this trilogy of stories that Jesus told, it's, he started off by saying a man had two sons. But really, ultimately, this story, this part of this trilogy about the, those that are lost and the kingdom of heaven and all that means, it's really the central character is really the father. The father. And what we refer to as the story of the prodigal son really should be titled the story of a prodigal father. As we said last week, prodigal really means extravagant, wasteful even, lavishing what is not deserved, or lavish, reckless spending. Certainly that applied to the son, no doubt, but it also applies to the father. And we're going to see more of why that is the case in just a second. But let's let's look back at Luke 15. Luke 15, 21. So the father who had been looking for his wayward son, he sees him a long way off. He runs. He does the unexpected and the undignified thing. And he runs to him and he grabs him and he hugs him and he kisses him. And recovering from the shock of that, no doubt, the son goes into his practiced and rehearsed response. Verse 21, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And again, the son is teaching us something. He's teaching us and he's reminding us that our sin is always first against God. Always is, always will be. Our sin, any sin, is first against God. But we need to remember, it also affects the people in our lives. It always will. Even if we don't directly sin against someone personally, our sinful choice will no doubt affect others around us. We all have a circle of influence. We all have a circle of impact. All of us. And our sin, in some way, will affect other people in our lives. But it is first and foremost a sin against God. And he shows us that, even in his statement. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And then he goes on, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's so important that he recognized this, because that was the truth. He was right. The way he treated his father by saying to him earlier, just go ahead and give me my share, my one-third my one third of the inheritance now. I'm tired of waiting for you to kick the bucket. I want what's coming to me. I don't really want you. I want your stuff. In fact, I, I really would just be better if you were dead. But since you're not, just go ahead and give me the inheritance. Unthinkable disrespect. Unthinkable irreverence. And so because of that, really, the son is right. He should have been declared dead legally by that father. He should have said, oh, if, if that's how you're going to treat me, if that's your choice, then, then I disown you. Not only are you not getting your inheritance, you're cut off from everything. You're, 
I don't even consider you my son anymore. That's what was done culturally, if anything like that would have ever been done on the part of a son. That's what would have been expected. So the son, in saying this, is actually right. He's recognizing the truth of what he's done in the situation and the seriousness of that. We said last week that we need to be careful not to be too critical of even though this is a, for all intents and purposes, likely a fictional account that Jesus was telling, but you know, we, we said that the characters, the way Jesus told this story, just come to life and it's as if they were real. And we need to be careful that we aren't too critical, too harsh on this, this son and his response. We have to be careful that we don't play the part of the Pharisees that this story was directly in response to because we too are just as shockingly irreverent and uncaring and selfish every time we choose to sin. We talked about that last week. We said, because of all we've been given, the extravagant, lavish, prodigal grace of our God and the life that we've been given that we did not deserve that cost Jesus his life, every time we take that life and we use it to live for self, and we pursue sin instead of righteousness, and instead of him, we're playing the part of this reckless, prodigal son. And so it's important for us to recognize, all of us, the same truth, that we don't deserve to be called children of God. That's not what we deserve The Apostle Paul clearly tells us that we were all before and apart from Christ and outside of Christ, we are all by nature children of wrath and that the wrath of God rightly rests on us. So friends, we don't deserve to be called the children of God at all. What we deserve is to receive the judgment of God. So it's important to recognize the truth of what this son expresses Why? Not just because it's true of us, but because remembering this truth that that we too are not worthy at all to be called sons and daughters of God, it makes the grace we receive from God that much more amazing. Doesn't it? When you realize who you are, when you realize who God is, when you realize what he's given you and what what you deserve and yet did not get, it makes grace that much more amazing. And the response that the father gives as he hears the son saying all this, that's why the father is a prodigal too. And a a good kind, a good kind of prodigal, but a prodigal nonetheless, giving lavishly, recklessly even, by, by what we would consider Uh, by wasteful standards. I mean, the son has no right whatsoever to receive what he's going to receive from the father. The father is under no obligation whatsoever to give him anything but judgment and punishment. And everyone hearing the story that Jesus was telling, when he got to this point, no doubt those shocks and those gasps came back, and they would have viewed the father as being wasteful toward the son. And indeed he was. He too was prodigal. Look at what the response was. Verse 22. 
After the son says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, I, I just, in my mind's eye, as Jesus is telling the story, I can even see Jesus maybe just raising his hand, playing the part of the father, what the father would have done, like, I, I've heard enough, I've heard enough. Just, you don't need to say any more. And here's what the father did. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe. That's favor and position. Think of, think of Joseph, the coat of many collars. Favor, unique, high, esteemed position. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. And this is not just any ring. This would have been the signet ring, the household ring, the ring of the family crest, the authority and the prominence of the family restored to the son who by his own choice had rejected it. And yet, here's the father saying, go get, go get the family crest, put it on his finger, restore his position in the family, and sandals on his feet. Remember, the son was prepared to accept the position of a lowly servant. He said, I'm not even worthy to be called your son, I accept that, just give me the position of a slave and I'll be good with it. But the father says, go get sandals to put on his feet. And what's significant about that is servants in this time and in this culture, slaves, servants, they didn't wear sandals. They weren't given something as, as to us minimal as, as sandals and feet covering would be, but to them that separated the servant or the slave from the master. Slaves didn't even have sandals to wear. And so he's saying, no, you're, you're my son. I love you. I've always loved you. I never stopped loving you. You're not going to just go around like a servant. No, I'm going to give you the sandals that you need for your feet. So then he goes on, verse 23, and he says, Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. This was something that was reserved for only the most honored, the most dignified guest. It's what they saved for when a noble or somebody royal, somebody really, really important came by. I mean, this would have been something that was the most precious of all the cattle, and this was something that was reserved for the most special of occasions. But he says about this son's coming home, now's the time for it. Go bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with the feast. And verse 24 tells us why, why he's, he's doing this. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And what this all serves to show us, this, this account and this part of the story it just teaches us so many good things, and we need to remember it. We need to apply it to our own lives. And that's this. Sin always damages our relationship with our Heavenly Father. It always does. It always will. It doesn't matter what the sin is. Sin will always damage our relationship with our Heavenly Father. But repentance always restores it. Always. We see that in verse 21. 
repentance, his repentance, restored his relationship to his father, and the same is always going to be true of us. And you need to remember that. Because the enemy is always going to tell you the lie that this is one time too many. That this is too much. Too far. You've gone too far this time. You've sinned too greatly. But that is a lie from the enemy. It is not a truth from the Holy Spirit. Because repentance will always, always restore the damaged relationship. Now, repentance is required. You have to repent. We have to acknowledge our sin and call it what it is and agree with God on it and the seriousness of it. But every time we do, no matter how damaged that relationship might be, the repentance will restore it. 1 John 1.9 promises that. We talked about 1 John 1, eight a little bit last week. That if, if you don't say you have any sin in you, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Verse 9 says, but if we confess, that's admit and accept our sin and acknowledge it before God, if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin always damages our relationship with our Heavenly Father, but repentance always restores it. And here's something that we need to understand and remember about repentance. Repentance isn't just feeling bad and being sorry. It's turning around and being different. Repentance isn't just feeling bad and being sorry. I mean, that's part of it. We need to have remorse for our sin. We need to have sorrow over our sin, sure. But we can't just stop there. That alone is not repentance. It's turning around from that sin that caused the damage to the relationship, and it's being different. It's changing. And that started in verse 18. We looked at that last week where he wakes up. You know, he realizes what he's done. He comes to his senses, and he says... I can't continue to live this way. I'm going to leave this, and I'm going to go back home, I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to make things right. So repentance in the story started in the heart and the mind of the son in verse 18, but it was fulfilled and it was brought to action in verses 20 and 21 where he actually goes, he makes the journey back. He does something about it. He turns around And we already see evidence of a changed heart by what he says to the Father. And we need to remember that. That repentance is not just feeling bad and feeling sorry. It's about turning around and being different. And then last but not least, we see a beautiful picture of this in this prodigal father in response to a prodigal son. That God's grace will always be greater than our greatest sin. And that is really good news. Because you and I are really good at sinning. We've been doing it since birth. We're, we're like professional sinners. And we can sin greatly. John Newton said at the end of his life, when he couldn't remember a lot of details, he said, one thing I remember, I am a great sinner but Christ is a great Savior. And God's grace will always be greater than even our greatest sin. And that's good news for all of us, but especially for those who may 
at this moment, be continuing to live in a manner that is tied to this very, very prodigal son, this wasteful, reckless, selfish son. Just like he squandered the gifts that his father had given him, just like he had squandered the life that had been built up by the father for both sons, maybe you're sitting here and and you have been squandering the life that God has given you, the grace he's given you. And you're thinking, you don't know what I've done. Yeah, it's easy to say that, but you don't understand. You don't know what has defined me. You don't know what I've chosen. You don't know what I've been. And you're right, I don't. But God does. And His grace is greater than our greatest sin, and it's available to even the greatest sinner because His Son, the Lord Jesus, took all sin on Himself at the cross, and His death was sufficient, sufficient for all sin, even the greatest So God's grace will always be greater than our greatest sin. Now, going back a little bit to verses 22 and 23, where the father just stops the son and says, no, no, I I don't want to hear anymore. You're home. And he tells his servants to go and bring out all those things. Those gifts that were mentioned in verses 22 and 23, the robe and the ring and the sandals and that fattened calf, None of those gifts that were mentioned were deserved or expected. They were the ultimate expression of extravagant or prodigal grace. And all of those things, the the robe and the ring and the sandals and the fattened calf, they were all symbols of the full restoration of the Son's name and His standing before the Father and the household and His honor being restored among His family and in the surrounding community. It was a beautiful thing. Full restoration. Not just restoration of a little bit. Not just restoration of some. Restoration of everything that the Son had willingly thrown away. And didn't deserve to have back. But here's the Father restoring it all. It's a beautiful picture of grace. And what the Son received from the Father in this story, listen, listen, what the Son received from the Father in this story is the reality for every true child of God. I want to just read to you Isaiah 61.10 because what we hear in this story and what this Scripture says in Isaiah 61.10 is exactly what is true for everyone who by Christ and through Christ comes to God and becomes one of His children. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me, listen to this, with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. What was the first thing that the Father called for to be brought and put around the Son? It was a robe. It was a robe. 
And just like Isaiah 61.10 talks about this robe of righteousness, I I just want you to to know and to remember, to, to realize that we too, if we're in Christ, we too have received a robe of righteousness. And the robe of righteousness that our Heavenly Father puts around us is the righteousness of our heavenly older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not something that's irreverent to refer to Jesus as. That's what Scripture itself refers to him as. Romans 8.29 and Hebrews 2.11 refers to Jesus as our great elder brother, our divine older brother. And so the robe of righteousness that we receive, it's not because we deserve it. It's not because we have worked for it. It's not any merit on our part. The robe of righteousness that our Heavenly Father puts around us is the very righteousness of our heavenly older brother. And just listen to how he provided it. Listen to how he provided it and what it cost. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, he, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of of God. Not only did the Father provide for us a robe of righteousness by giving us Christ's righteousness, the cost of Him becoming sin for us was more than we can fathom. And it involved this, it required this, that Jesus, Jesus became a curse for us so that we could become co-heirs with Him. Think about that. We, the rebel, we, the ones that rejected all that God didn't have to give us but did and can continue to reject every time we sin, we who didn't deserve anything but the wrath of God, Jesus, the Son, the righteous one, our great, perfect, older brother, became a curse for us in our place before the Father, also that we could become co-heirs with Him. Galatians 3.13 tells us that. Romans 8.16-17. And my, what a, what a contrast this is to the older brother in this story that we're going to talk about next week as we end this story. What a contrast it is in the way that the older brother responds to the, the younger brother coming home the fact that our older brother would do this for us, become sin for us, become a curse for us so that we could become his righteousness, so that we could become co-heirs with him. And man, this shows us, this points to us the fact that we have a very, very prodigal God who will lavish on us grace, lavish on us mercy, lavish on us love, And when we see ourselves and all that we are, and we see the way we have responded to Him time and time again, certainly certainly it would be right to say that His grace is wasted on us. But He doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see it that way at all. What a prodigal prodigal God we have. So, 
the question then is, what do we do with that? I mean, knowing we have a God that does this, knowing that we have a Father that loved us so much that He made His Son who knew no sin to be sin for us all so that we could be the righteousness of God, that we would have a Savior willing to become a curse for us so that we could become co-heirs with Him. I mean, what do we do with that, right? What is the, a fitting response well, it really comes down to this. It's, it's really very simple. In response to all of that, we need to reject sin and live for Him. We don't need to make it more complicated. I mean, that's the only fitting response. That moment by moment, with every breath, we reject Sin in any and all forms. We reject selfishness and living for self. And instead, we live for Him, the One who did all this for us. We live for our prodigal, prodigal God. And our great older brother, who literally gave up everything to give us everything we need. Romans 6, 1-2 says this, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Should we continue being able just to go out and live recklessly, wastefully, extravagantly as a prodigal in the negative sense because we have a prodigal in the good sense, God? Paul says, absolutely not. God forbid. No, that's not how we should look at this. And he says, verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And the answer is, of course, we can't. We shouldn't. That's unthinkable. When we realize all that we have received, all this extravagant, lavished grace, we need to say with Paul, I can't continue just to live in that sin, knowing grace will multiply to me. Absolutely not. And instead of continuing to live in sin, we need to die to sin so that we can live in righteousness. That needs to be our response. But my friends, no matter how we may want to do that, none of us can do that on our own in our strength, in our ability. It has to come from a source greater than us. And the really good news, the part of the gospel that unfortunately we don't spend enough time on that we forget, is that in the gospel, it's not just that our sins were atoned for, the gospel provides the power to reject that sin. Every moment, and every day. And that comes in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit of God. That you have in you, dwelling with you, Almighty God in you, living in you, working through you, applying His power and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to every part of your being. That's what we need to remember. That's what we need to turn to. Don't just look to yourself. Look to the one in you, giving you the power to die to sin and to live to righteousness. And knowing all that the Father has done to us and the the great picture of this scandalous grace, 
that the Father in this story shows us, we can do nothing less. We can do nothing less. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the reminder of Scripture, of a, of a very familiar story, the reminder that we have all received extravagant and even scandalous grace, that we, like this prodigal son, we don't deserve anything but judgment. We don't deserve to be your son or daughter. We didn't deserve to be purchased from the slave market of sin. And yet we were. And you have clothed us with a royal robe and a royal ring. You've put sandals on our feet showing that we are not a slave but a son or a daughter. And you have celebrated by holding nothing back, by sacrificing not a fattened calf, but by sacrificing your only son. And you did that for us, the rebel, the sinner. And though we were dead in our sins, you brought us back to life. You raised us up with your son, and you seated us with him in the heavenly places, making us co-heirs with the king. Oh, Father, thank you for your prodigal grace. Help us, please, by your Spirit to live for you in response and not for ourselves. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.